This week in KMA Land, another school shooting shocks KMA Land lawmakers. KMA Land school officials react to Texas school tragedy. Fremont County officials hear carbon pipeline pitch. Page County officials award window replacement contract. And Shenandoah City Council welcomes a new council member. Also an end of an era at the Iowa legislature. I'm Mike Peterson. Deadly shooting sprees are becoming all too common occurrences in American schools. This week, Uvalde, Texas joined the ranks of Littleton, Colorado, Jonesboro, Arkansas, Newtown, Connecticut, and Parkland, Florida, as communities grieving the loss of students and instructors at the hands of a gunman. Nineteen children and two adults were killed when 18-year-old Salvador Ramos entered Robb Elementary School and executed a shooting rampage before being shot and killed himself by law enforcement. Reaction from Iowa's congressional delegation ran the gamut of emotions. An angered Iowa Congresswoman Cindy Axney says she's sick and tired of incidents such as that in Evaldi and in Buffalo, New York, where 10 people were gunned down in a grocery store earlier this month. In an interview with KMA News, the West Des Moines Democrat chided Republicans in the U.S. Senate who are blocking action on gun reform bills previously advanced in the House including one expanding background checks for gun ownership in the country. We have passed a bipartisan background check out, bipartisan, bipartisan, out of the House to deal with making sure that any firearm sales or transfers in this country have appropriate background checks taken into account to ensure that guns don't go into the hands of people uh, who who are going to do things like this. But yet what we have are senators who won't stand up for what's right. Saying she's from a family of hunters and as a former Iowa Department of Natural Resources employee, Axney says she respects Second Amendment rights. I know that so many of our gun owners in this state want to make sure that they do so safely. This is not about taking away anybody's constitutional rights, but it's all about making sure that we can send our kids to school that our kids can step up and be teachers without fearing for their lives, that we can go to church on Sunday morning and not fear being shot, that we can go to the grocery store and pick up some groceries or go to a movie or go to the mall. Axney rejects comments that more attention should be given to mental health reform in the country rather than stricter gun laws. 25 to 30 percent, and it's probably grown more since I last checked the data, have some sort of mental health behavioral issue in this country. They're not out shooting people. So I'm tired of people laying it at the blame of folks with mental health issues. We do need to address mental health in this country. We absolutely need to. But I don't want that being pushed off on folks who do have mental health issues that they're trying to address. That's a health care issue. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, meanwhile, called on colleagues to reconsider a measure designed to prevent future school shootings. Speaking at the beginning of a U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee hearing Wednesday morning, Grassley called for the resurrection of the Eagles Act, which would expand the U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center, or NTAC, with a greater focus on school violence prevention. Grassley's remarks come in the wake of the deadly shooting. Uh, the senator expressed his condolences to the victim's families. It's not easy for individuals thousands of miles away to understand how parents and friends, grandparents and everybody else is hurt by 20 people being killed and two teachers being killed. Uh, the killing of 
children is sickening and heartbreaking. Uh, schools should be a safe place for students and educators. Named after the mascot of Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, the site of another shooting spree in 2018, the bill would create a national program on targeted school violence prevention and expands the NTAC's research and training on school violence and its dissemination of information on violence prevention programs. Grassley, the Judiciary Committee's ranking member, believes the bill would stop its incidents such as that in Texas. I don't know to what extent it would keep our schools safer, but I know this, that the Secret Service has been exercising some help to train people how to notify people that are harm to themselves or harm to somebody else and intervene in it. And this would be extended to personnel of schools. Though Grassley and a bipartisan group of Senate and House members first introduced the bill in 2021, it has languished in the Senate since that time. KMA land residents were among those feeling the shooting's impact. Prior to the beginning of Wednesday night's Clarinda City Council meeting, Police Chief Keith Brothers asked for a moment of silence to remember the lives lost in Texas. Based on that tragedy that happened in Uvalde, Texas yesterday, I mean, it's just incomprehensible that 19 small children just going to school are dead now. It's just just like to take a moment of silence if we could. Perhaps no group of people were more affected by the incident than school officials and staff members. Like other KMA land administrators, Glenwood School Superintendent Devin Embray says he was shocked and mortified by the events in Texas. Every time something like this happens, you know, it's just a very tragic and terrible event. It's a heinous crime. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the families affected, and uh, hopefully, you know, things can, protocols can be put in place to help deter and, and uh, get more mental health capabilities to the schools and to the communities so that we can address the, the mental health of our in the years since the Columbine shooting in 1999 and Sandy Hook in 2012, new safeguards have been installed in area school facilities. In Glenwood, for example, security measures start with building entrances. We obviously, when our school day starts, we have all of our buildings in lockdown all day long, so people have to buzz to get in. Nobody can just come into the building unassisted anymore, and every one of our buildings has a double buzz-in entry system, so they have to be buzzed from the outside to the vestibule and from the vestibule into the office. Embrace's panic alarms located in each of the district's offices are connected to Montgomery County's communication center. Additionally, Glenwood Police provides a school resource officer as part of the arrangement with the district. We have one officer that rotates amongst the four buildings, and and they're in all four buildings, depending on the, the day of the week and the time of the day. You know, their presence and working with families on, on truancy, but also, you know, they're also there as a presence for safety. And again, with that response time, our school resource officer is probably first on the scene, depending on where an issue would be. So it's, it's been a good relationship. And lockdown drills have joined fire and tornado drills as necessary safety exercises. Embry adds other deterrents he's not willing to disclose are in place to prevent another tragedy from occurring. Fremont County officials remain opposed to using eminent domain for a proposed carbon dioxide pipeline project, despite a presentation this week extolling the virtues of a pipeline. 
Meeting in regular session Wednesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors heard from Paul Phillips and Riley Gibson of Turnkey Logistics on behalf of Summit Carbon Solutions to discuss the economic benefits and current construction timeline for the Midwest Express CO2 pipeline. Phillips's construction of the pipeline, which consists of just under 700 miles across the five-state project, is expected to begin in the summer of 2023. Phillips says the hopes of the project is to keep the ethanol industry alive, which he says has become a significant destination for Iowa's corn growers. You know, 57% of the corn sold on average in Iowa, uh, or produced in Iowa, is used to produce ethanol. So, you know, what this means is if these plants are, are get shut down, I mean, this is a big problem for all the corn producers, you know, in Iowa. At the board's April 27th meeting, the supervisors unanimously approved a letter to the Iowa Utilities Board stating their opposition to eminent domain for the pipeline. Supervisor Dustin Sheldon says that despite some of the positive impacts the pipeline could have, he and the board are still adamantly against the land seizure process. Uh, Sheldon says it almost goes against the point of the project. When you start using your eminent domain, you're taking right from the people that actually produce your ethanol. In my opinion, I, you know, my resistance will be for him against him that domain. So whatever we have to do to prevent that from happening, I'd like to see that done. In Fremont County, the pipeline would briefly enter the eastern portion connected to Green Plains Shenandoah LLC. Phillips says Summit currently has acquired roughly 60% of the necessary landowner easements in Iowa. Additionally, he distanced Summit from a company trying to push their way through the state. We're not, you know, a big, a big oil and gas pipeline project yeah. that's just coming to push our way through the state. Uh, we're here to be a neighbor. We're here to, you know, this is, a, this is an Iowa company. This is to benefit Iowa. This is, we're going to do everything we can to get these easements 100% voluntary. We are committed to that. We don't even have a route to condemnation as of now. Phillips says the pipeline is expected to provide roughly $1 million annually in tax revenue in Fremont County and $28 million over the project's life. Several counties across the state, including Montgomery, Page, and Mills County in KMA land, have sent a letter to the IUB stating their objection to eminent domain for the pipeline project. IUB officials say any action on Summit's permit application is not expected until at least February 2023. After months of discussion, Page County's monumental courthouse window project has a contractor. At its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors opened a pair of bids for the courthouse window replacement project. After discussion, the board accepted the more than $646,000 base bid in all upgrades from Fine & Sons Home Builders out of Clarinda. The bid came in over $200,000 cheaper than the second bid and nearly $90,000 less than the original projected cost. Additionally, the building company provided a projected completion date of May 31, 2023. Supervisor Chuck Morris's lengthy wait times on windows prompted the county to allow companies to offer their own completion date. The contractors had their pre-bid meeting. Uh, there was a lot of concern about window supplies being 33, 38 weeks out. And they felt right. like December 31st might keep them from bidding. Uh -huh. So collectively, we decided that we would allow them to put the end date when they can complete it so that we can get as many bids as possible. With all upgrades, the project is estimated to cost around $701,000, which the board intends to cover with American Rescue Plan Act funds. 
There is a new face on the Shenandoah City Council. I, Richard Jones. I, Richard Jones. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support. That I will support. The Constitution. The Constitution. Of the United States. Of the United Shenandoah States. Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen Tuesday night administered the oath of office to Richard Jones, who was appointed as the city's new at-large council member at the previous meeting. Jones fills the remainder of Cindy Armand's term, which expires at the end of 2023. Armand resigned last month. Tuesday marked the end of the 14-day filing period for a petition for a special election to fill the vacancy. Prior to the beginning of the meeting, the council held a moment of silence for former Shenandoah Fire Chief Ron Fox, who died Monday at the age of 81. The 2022 Iowa General Assembly wrapped up early Wednesday morning, and the legislature's adjournment was bittersweet for a couple of KMA land lawmakers, including State Representative Cecil Dolacek, whose 26-year political career came to a close. In an interview with KMA News, Dolacek listed a number of highlights from the just-concluded session, including the passage of a 3.9% flat rate for income taxes early on. So basically, we wanted to do some, some tax cuts, leave some more money in the family's pockets, and we were able to get that done early. We're committed to uh, doing the ethanol piece and getting that passed for biofuels. We got that done early to be good for southwest Iowa and farmers and agriculture in general. We're able to do some child care pieces and so on. Uh, be able to fund public uh, education in schools at a, at a quality level. In addition, legislators in the waning days of the session finally approved a major revision to the state's so-called bottle bill. Among other things, the measure raises the handling fee from one to three cents per container and allows retailers meeting certain criteria to opt out of redeeming cans and bottles. However, the five-cent deposit fee remains intact. The bill awaits Governor Kim Reynolds' signature. The Mount Air Republican says the changes were a long time in coming. I think it was about time. Worked on trying to get uh, something passed to get more money out there to redemption centers, those type of things, and make them profitable so we could keep our roads and side ditches and those things, things clean and give the opportunity to have people recycle. Uh, that was not happening in, in rural Iowa, so I think this is an opportunity to do something. Hadn't been changed in, what, 20 five, six years since it was first implemented or more. One bill lawmakers passed on was a proposed moratorium on using eminent domain for acquiring land for proposed carbon pipeline projects, such as Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Express project. Though lawmakers passed the moratorium in the House, the measure stalled in the Senate. Still, Dolacek advises landowners not to worry. We've had assurances and, uh, from the Iowa Utilities Board, uh, both board members and the chair, uh, that it will take to them quite some lengthy process. If they try to go that route, there's been no intent or notification that they're trying to do anything like that. So uh, nothing could happen before next legislative session, and the Iowa Utilities Board will not grant any authority or any in the domain for these projects until the legislature would be back in session before that could ever happen anyway. Iowa's biofuel industry and taxpayers are but two groups benefiting from action taken in the just-concluded session. That's according to State Senator Mark Costello, who also reviewed some of the highlights of the 2022 General Assembly, which wrapped up earlier this week. Of all the bills passed this year, Costello is particularly proud of the bill designed to boost sales of ethanol-blended fuels in the state. 
Under the measure approved last month, most gas stations will be required to offer gasoline with 15% ethanol in at least one pump by 2026. Any new gas station that opens after January 1, 2023 would be required to sell E15 in half of their pumps. While saying the measure may not have a dramatic impact, Costello told KMA News he believes it demonstrates support for biofuels. You know, I was uh, you know, a small part of the entire ethanol use, so it, it might not be that dramatic, but it certainly sends a statement to other states that we believe in our product and that we support our, our farmers, and it will make a difference for our local consumers. Uh, e- E15 tends to be significantly uh, lower in price than the uh, E10 blend and then certainly over the non-ethyl uh, gasoline. The Imogene Republican also touts the tax package approved in the early days of the session, including setting a flat income tax rate. Costello is also pleased lawmakers finally approved changes in the state's 44-year-old bottle bill. He says one change people might not know about involves the establishment of drop boxes for cans and bottles. You can get like a sticker uh, printed off and put it on your bag of cans and drop it off at some place and then have them processed and then you'll get money credited to your account. And I think that's kind of maybe a a real opportunity. You know, we lost our redemption centers with uh, initiative productions, and they probably are not going to go back into that, but they might uh, use the drop boxes and do something along those lines. One of Costello's disappointments this session is the failure of Governor Kim Reynolds' school scholarship program. Under the measure, $55 million in state aid would provide for up to 10,000 children to attend private schools in the state. Costello says urban students would gain the most benefit from the program. Still, he says he was in favor of the bill and allowing students to open enroll in other districts any time of the year. There's no word on whether Reynolds will sign that particular measure. School boards in two KMA line districts grappled with space issues this past week. First, Red Oak school officials narrowed the number of prospective firms for a comprehensive study on the district's facilities. At its regular meeting Monday night, the Red Oak School Board unanimously approved three finalists in an interview process for facility assessments and long-range proposals. Red Oak School Superintendent Ron Lorenz told KMA News that the action is just the next step in hoping to get ahead on the district's needs. He adds the process started a little over a month ago when the district reached out to several firms for a proposal. We sent out a request for proposals. I think we sent it out to 15 firms uh, looking for their help, interested in what, uh, what they might offer. We did have nine architectural and engineering firms that responded to our request. And last night we, we took a look at those and, and kind of figured out our next steps. Lorenz says a space crunch in Inman Elementary School due to increases in enrollment has also caught the board's attention. As a result, the board took action at its May 9th meeting to purchase a portable classroom to address the issue in the short term. He adds the hope is for the study to cover a variety of factors in the long-term shaping of the facilities and address any limitations. Safety, accessibility, utility, and then I guess ultimately the sustainability of district facilities. We want to address the the maintenance, the renovation, replacement uh, of existing facilities over the next 5 to 15 years. So in other words, we want to be very proactive. We want to make sure that rather than just reacting as situations arise, we want to have a plan moving forward. Of the nine firms expressing interest, Lorenz says the board was able to whittle their choices down to three. says the board could reach a decision as soon as late June. On June 13th, we're going to have each of those three firms bring the principal team members and talk to the board for 20 minutes and then reserve 10 minutes for questions. 
We're then going to give the board an opportunity to deliberate before we come back on our June 27th meeting and, and take some action or take no action, depending upon the will of the board. Lorenz adds he hopes the study will allow them to be even more responsible and effective with taxpayer dollars. Space issues also dominated discussion at Wednesday night's Clarinda School Board meeting. By a 4-1 to vote Wednesday evening, the board approved a three-year lease for a two-year classroom portable building from Wilscott Mobile Space Solutions for more than $135,000. Plans call for placing the structure at Clarinda's 7-12 through 12 campus to alleviate space issues at that building. Lance Ridgely is the district's interim special education director and superintendent-designee. Ridgely says the district's facilities committee recommended the portable unit over other options, including constructing additional walls to the district's CTE building, serving students off-site at Iowa Western Community College's Clarinda campus, or using the former Clarinda Academy's activity center. We were really thinking the CTE building, cutting it up and putting classrooms there was, was the best option. But then the conversation about it, the importance of CTE for the district and such, I think really tipped some of us to look back in this direction. Board member Paul Boyson cast a loan dissenting vote. Boyson says the district created the space issue by moving middle school students to the high school complex two years ago. He also questioned the portable classroom's expense, saying the district was trying to address a bubble of large enrollment numbers in grades 8 through 10. Boyson says enrollment numbers will drop once that bubble moves through. We are talking about spending between 100000 and almost a quarter million dollars solve a temporary problem. I think there are probably cheaper ways if we look at them. The problem is we have a higher hair on fire moment now because we're two and a half months from school starting and we're just starting down this process. I don't think there's any way in God's green earth you're going to have a building out there by the time school starts. Boyson called for the board to delay a decision and hold a special meeting June 1st to address questions regarding the portable, but no action was taken on Boyson's motion. Board member Scott Honeyman is a facilities committee member. Honeyman says the committee looked at several factors before recommending the portable unit, including security and transportation issues with the other options. Keeping our kids safe is a high priority of ours. Eliminating uh, movement off and on and off of campus multiple times a day, staff, students, you're going to put money into you know, something that, that you don't own. You get dictated by the state, you get dictated by the community college when you have access to this, when you can use it, when you can't use it. It really limits our availability and our ability to use the space that uh, we're investing for our students. Well, saying he didn't disagree with Boyson's concerns regarding the expense, board member Greg Jones says he felt the board should follow the committee's recommendation. Board member Trish Bergeron agreed, saying the desire was to keep students in one location. Originally, the board considered a six-year lease for the building, for more than $211,000. A Southwest Iowa native and 2012 Nishtabatna Botna High School graduate has been awarded a Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal for his work helping evacuees in Afghanistan. Kyle Tillman grew up in Hamburg, Shenandoah, and Farragut and enlisted in the Navy shortly after he graduated high school. Following basic training, Tillman says he decided to pursue a medical career in the military. I was a line corpsman, so it was basically the best way to say it is just like a combat medic. You know, you're running around with a rifle and a med bag, you know, uh, patching wounds and stuff, but and handing out Motrin for the people who know about it. Um, so that was pretty much how it started. And then after I left division, um, went to Surface Force Independent Duty Corpsman School, which is basically the Navy's way of giving you credentials to practice as a mid-level practitioner. Um, so now 
I uh, pretty much operate a medical aid station, and then I, I see patients on a day-to-day basis. Tillman first deployed with a Marine Corps unit and spent time in Romania, Jordan, Oman, and Greece before returning home. His second deployment included another seven-month stay in Romania. Last summer, Tillman was sent to Saudi Arabia and was eventually sent to Kabul, Afghanistan in August 2021 as U.S. forces started withdrawing from the country. I was basically assigned to the evacuation control center, which is everywhere, like, everybody was being processed through there. So everybody that made it through and um, they, they had their papers or visas and all that stuff squared away. They make their way through the evacuation control center. We had like a, a little medical aid station set up inside there. So I was actually, I was mostly seeing the evacuees, um, which wasn't expected. I guess you could say it was kind of out of left field. Currently, Tillman is stationed in Myanmar, California, where he operates a daily clinic treating servicemen and women. Additionally, helps train medical students for the Navy. Tillman is married to Madison Sainer Tillman and has a son. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to kmaland.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.